traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. The title of tonight's Twilight Zone comes from a 16th century English proverb that goes, it's ill waiting for dead man's shoes. And this is relating to a person being unable to advance because someone else is already in the position that they want to be in. But it's a position that is only usually vacated when the person in it dies. As is the case with language though, as time goes on, meanings evolve, things become mixed up, and they are used in different ways. Now if you look up the phrase online now, it becomes linked with several other phrases that aren't necessarily originating in the same way. For example, a dead man walking is a person who is alive, but their fate is already sealed. It's only a matter of time before they are dead. So if you combine the two, then you may have a threat. You're walking in dead man's shoes. Your days are numbered. Now they're just a couple of examples, but considering how integral this title is to the story in tonight's episode, it's hard to believe that this wasn't the actual original title of the show. Originally, it was called Venus in the Garage, and then Down to Earth, and then following that, The Reluctant Genius. And it's hard to imagine how any of these titles fit with what we actually got on the screen. Then in addition, there's also the detail that originally the main prop of the piece wasn't a pair of shoes at all. It was a cowboy hat. So that's what could have been, but let's take a look at what was when we step in to those dead man's shoes. Nathan Edward Bledsoe of the Bowery Bledsoes. A man once a specter now. One of those myriad modern day ghosts that haunt the reeky nights of the city in search of a flop, a handout, a, a glass of forgetfulness. Nate doesn't know it, but his search is about to end. Because those shiny new shoes are going to carry him right into the capital of the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on January 19th, 1962. Written by Charles Beaumont and an uncredited O.C. Rich. And directed by Montgomery Pittman. We have spoken about Monty Pittman quite recently with the episodes Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? 2 and The Grave. And this is his second to last Twilight Zone, with the last rites of Jeff Metalbank still to come. Now I mentioned an uncredited O.C. Rich, and this is one of the main points of trivia for this episode. It's credited to Charles Beaumont, but apparently he was so busy with other projects that the teleplay was actually written by O.C. Rich. And we've encountered him in the Twilight Zone before, because the episode Static was based on his short story, but the teleplay for that was written by Charles Beaumont, so this episode reverses those roles. Now when the episode opens we see some gangsters in a car after dumping a dead body in an alleyway, and a homeless man then goes over and takes his shoes. Then we have a whip pan over to Rod Sailing, who gives us a short, but I, I still think pretty good opening narration. And it's quite a punchy little piece of street poetry, and he refers to the homeless man as someone who was once a man, but is now a spectre, one of those myriad modern-day ghosts that haunt the reeky nights of the city. Essentially, 
people like this become an accepted and expected part of city life. As common as the benches and other street furniture, and as sailing says, in search of a handout or a glass of forgetfulness, as is often the case with the unfortunate people who find themselves in this position. So in an episode where, as we'll hear, Sailing didn't really have much of a stake in this one, he still brings a nice little intro to it here. So in this opening scene, after the homeless man puts on the shoes, he does a really good little piece of business, I think. He looks like he's going to go one way, but then the shoes appear to take him another. And the actor Warren Stevens gives this nice little look where he's slightly questioning himself. What just happened here? But then he just goes with it and starts making his way. You uh, make a little strike, Nate? Nah. So what's the hurry? I don't know. I don't try to kid me, Nate. You're after a jug. Sam, what has come over you? I see the whole thing is clearly a case of assault and battery. Oh, what are you talking about? I just asked him where he was. I would gladly testify for you in a court case. Forget it. He didn't mean nothing. Spoken like a true gentleman. There, you see, aren't you ashamed of yourself to think that a man of such honor would refuse to share his windfall with his old comrades? I don't know what you're talking about. Now, Nathan, 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 please don't destroy the image that I have created. It's quite obvious that you're on to something. We couldn't mistake your steadfast walk, your sense of well-being, and your new shoes. Yeah, a bit expensive, aren't they? So the transition from one of the city's lost souls to gangster by way of the shoes is quite a gradual one. Once the shoes are on, it takes a while for the Dane personality to come through. And we'll come back to that point a little bit later on. But our next piece of business concerns Dane going to the place where he lives with his presumed girlfriend Wilma, played by Joan Marshall. Now Joan was a steady actress, mainly in the 50s and 60s and also the 70s, who primarily performed once or twice in several shows, apart from a regular gig in a 1959 show called Bold Venture. Dane, I'm glad you're back, honey. I keep losing. Well, what have you got? Who are you? What do you want? Look, you better get out of here. That's Dane's bottle. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm drinking it. You know, if he comes back and finds you here, he'll kill you. Mister, don't you hear me? He'll kill you. Wilma. You'll never make it downstairs. So what these scenes show is basically what a repellent character Dane Bledsoe is. Now Wilma doesn't know at this point that Dane has been killed. And when he goes into the apartment in the body of this homeless man, he doesn't go in and try and say to her, look, something strange has happened, I've been killed, but now I'm in this guy's body. And he actually seems to revel to some degree in the distress that his being there causes Wilma. So this Twilight Zone isn't giving us a hero to root for. And that's okay because quite often they are about someone getting their just desserts. But again, we'll come back to this later on. What we get here is quite an extended sequence where Dane comes into the apartment, is horrible to Wilma, and then goes and starts to pick out some clothing and then goes to get into the bath or the shower and he takes his shoes off. Then the Dane Bledsoe character disappears and we're left with the homeless man again. Now there's also a bit of business here where Wilma pulls a gun on him and so on, but this is a pretty long sequence where not a huge amount happens except a confirmation to the audience that the shoes are the thing that's making this happen. Quite recently on the Patreon page, we looked at an episode of the 1980s Twilight Zone called Dead Woman Shoes, which is a remake 
of this one. And it starred Helen Mirren as a shy, reserved woman who worked in a charity shop. And she puts on the shoes of a murdered woman while she's there in that shop. But the transformation is instantaneous. There's then a similar scene where she goes to her home and dresses in the clothing of the former self, the original owner of the shoes, and she confronts her husband, who we learn is responsible for her murder. Now remaking things is always controversial with fans, especially something beloved like The Twilight Zone. And some of the Twilight Zone remakes in the reboot series don't work out well. But I actually think that this aspect is handled better in the remake than in this one. Unlike with Bledsoe, when Helen Mirren's character puts the shoes on, the change is instant. So we can just get on with the story. We don't waste all this time where she's kind of going through the motions of wondering what's going on. And the episode doesn't need to keep reinforcing to us that it's the shoes that are making this happen. And when she goes home and we have all of these who are you scenes, it's more integral to the plot because she's confronting her murderous husband at the same time. So I do feel that the pacing here in this original episode is a little bit off. But what it does give us is a chance for the actor Warren Stevens to play with that dual aspect to this role. All right, mister. Where's Dane? Dane? I don't understand, lady. Oh, yes, you do. You've got his shoes, and no one else wears shoes like Dane's. Oh, the shoes? Uh, well, I found the shoes. You mean you stole them? Yeah, that's right, lady. I, I st stole them. Where? I don't, I don't understand. At the I... club? The what? Well, what was he doing there? I don't know, lady. Well, what do you know, mister? Nothing. I don't know nothing, lady. I... You know, I ought to kill you busting in here like you own the place. Lady, please. Don't do that. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. Put on the shoes and get out of here. Yeah. Yes, lady, I'll go. Warren Stevens plays Nate Bledsoe and he was born in 1919 and I'm happy to report he lived a good long life until the age of 92 and he passed in 2012. And he worked almost up until the end and he was extremely prolific in his acting career. In World War II he was in the Marine Corps and he served in the war but when he left he then focused on his acting career working in radio and summer stock. And when he got his foot in the door on screen, he never stopped. By the time The Twilight Zone came around, he'd been on screen for over 10 years, appearing in a large number of the anthology shows of the day. And he was also in that great Twilight Zone prop store, Forbidden Planet, where he played Lieutenant Ostro, or Doc. So considering he did appear several times in other anthologies like Alfred Hitchcock Presents, this is his only Twilight Zone appearance in the classic series. Although he would return in the 80s Twilight Zone in an episode called A Day in Beaumont in 1986. So like I said, we have him in dual roles here. And I think he does a good job. He has that look about him. He's handsome, but with a sharpness and quite a predatory aspect to him. And I imagine somewhere in his list of credits there must be another gangster role, and I'm sure he did it well. But this role is key to the whole episode. If it doesn't work, nothing works. And Stevens does a good job. And how that figures in the overall episode, we'll get into that shortly. In Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, Martin Grams Jr. documents a quote from him, and he's talking about the direction he received from Monty Pittman. And he says, 
Pittman said, listen, I don't know how you should play this. You're on your own. So that was it. I was on my own. I played the bum who put on the shoes of a dead gangster and then became the gangster. I think it should be a joint effort with suggestions from both parties kind of melding into something that comes out right. So I never forgot Pittman saying to me, I don't know what to tell you. I met Rod Sailing, not on that show, but I met him before. He smoked far too much, but otherwise he was a very personable guy. So by the time Bledsoe has figured out how to take a bath without taking his shoes off and cleaned himself up, 16 minutes of our episode has passed and there's only 9 minutes left to go to focus on what I feel probably should have been the main thrust of it, the revenge aspect. Because we've spent so long getting Bledsoe cleaned up, it feels like the episode is just getting started when in fact it's gearing up for its finale. If you remember earlier, I mentioned that O.C. Rich worked on this based upon a treatment by Charles Beaumont, but that's only part of the overall story of how this one kind of stumbled its way to the screen. And Martin Grams Jr. documents this quite extensively in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. Now I won't read the passage in full because it's quite long, but I will try and maybe summarize a few points. So although the first draft of the script was completed in 1960, it didn't actually end up on the screen until the third season. And it seems that it was actually being considered as one of the videotape episodes because Martin Grams Jr. documents some comments from Buck Houghton to Rod Serling. And he says, acceleration is tough to contain, so is reluctant genius, unless early ratings or reviews overwhelm CBS. I don't see how we can support a plea for film. It does no good to be dubious about tape costs for the peculiarities of Twilight Zone. CBS ain't dubious. Six tapes look like $42,000 in the bank to them. And the script actually went so far as to be scheduled for production under the direction of Buzz Kulik. But then it was decided it needed a rewrite and then it got pushed on another year. Jimmy, that fellow at the bar, you know him? Negative. Ben, what about you? I've never seen him before in my life. Why? Well, he seems to know us. You like to leave uh, dangerously, do you? Am I? If you keep on staring at this woman... It's not the woman I'm staring at. So now we're here in the final act and Dane goes to confront Daggett, who we get the impression is some sort of crime kingpin. And I actually enjoy this scene quite a bit. Now, while it wasn't pleasant to watch Bledsoe essentially torturing Wilma because she didn't recognise him, here, it's a little different. He sets himself up at the bar and starts to stare Daggett out. And then when they get talking, he's dropping in all of these details that show that he knows things that he shouldn't know. And this disorientates Daggett. And it's this back and forth between them that I think is the best part of the episode. And Warren Stevens brings a real glee to the part, like he's really enjoying toying with Daggett. What's your name? Kilroy. Look, buddy, when Mr. Daggett at... What's your business, Mr. Kilroy? Well, you might say, uh, I'm kind of a messenger. I got a message for you, Bernie. Well, let's have it. Nah, I uh, was given instructions to deliver this message privately. Well, it's a touchy matter, you know how it is. So as we know, this confrontation doesn't end up well for Bledsoe. And after the gangsters drop him off in their favourite body dumping alleyway, we're left to ponder what we think of this episode. Now in the Twilight Zone Companion, Mark Zickery says, Perhaps as a result of all these subterranean dealings, the writing is very muddy, the characterizations extremely sketchy, 
The idea is a good one, but the story lacks a feeling of authenticity. The characters all feel like old carbon copies of various B-movie types, rather than being based on real people. And this is death for Dead Man's Shoes. I'm inclined to agree with Mark Zickrey's assessment on this one, and essentially, the characters are paper-thin stereotypes. That's not always a bad thing, you know, I enjoy this aspect of Americana, movie gangsters sitting trying to size each other up verbally in public, than doing their dirty work behind the scenes. But when the episode as a whole is lacking, it's unfortunately another weak aspect of that unsatisfying whole. So like Mark Zickrey said, when we look back on the history of Dead Man's Shoes, as this story that got thrown into the mix prior to 1960 and was passed from Charles Beaumont to O.C. Rich, and then there was this whole back and forth about whether it was going to be a videotaped episode or not. It gives the impression that it was a story that no one really grabbed a hold of and it kind of stumbled its way into existence. And I mean that as no disrespect to O.C. Rich or Beaumont, who I'm sure worked hard on it, but it does seem a little thin and that's okay at times. Not every Twilight Zone needs to include these very poignant life lessons. It's great to have just a good, strange yarn sometimes. But I just don't feel that the yarn is engaging overall. It's interesting that an old friend of the show called Grace wrote in recently, and in the answer to her comments, I spoke about a show called One Step Beyond. And the story was about a murdered woman who takes control of the body of another woman to try and solve her own murder. And I'm sure fiction is probably littered with other instances of this trope. But my comments were along the lines of the story as told by One Step Beyond was very much a very surface story and there was nothing really under the hood to add any depth to it. And I was using this as an example of how the Twilight Zone was generally superior in its depth of storytelling. But ironically, this Twilight Zone is quite similar to that episode of One Step Beyond and is in itself very thin. So by the time Dane Bledsoe puts his revenge plan into place, there's less than 10 minutes of the episode left and his interactions with Wilma just shows what a deplorable character he is. And that's okay too, I don't always need to like the main character in a story I just need to be interested in them. But what we have here is just a despicable man who lived a gangster's life, a life where being whacked is part of the risk. If he was a good man, then perhaps we would be rooting for him in his revenge plot. But he's not. He's just as bad as the people who killed him. So the character of Dane Bledsoe as written isn't really that interesting. But I think the saving grace and the thing that really ties the episode together is Warren Stevens. He's very watchable. And the only point in the episode that really makes me sit up and take notice is the conclusion when Bledsoe is shot and he says his final words. I'll be back, Bernie. And I'll keep coming back. Again and again. And I'll get you. So help me, I'll get you. I watched that and I thought, yes, you know, finally the episode has made me feel something. The burning need for revenge that Dane has, has caused him to cheat death, and will likely cause him to cheat death again. And he spits it out through gritted teeth, and it's a, a really great moment by Warren Stevens. So I do feel that the episode should have spent less time on Dane's disorientation and getting cleaned up, and more on this aspect, you know, that white-hot determination to get his revenge at all costs, and make sort of comment on this never-ending cycle that revenge becomes. What that story would be, I don't entirely know. The 80s remake, while paced better, 
doesn't solve all of the problems of the episode either. Both are flawed. So while that's not really an endorsement for Dead Man's Shoes, I don't think it's a complete condemnation either. You know, it's light and it's easy to watch. But ultimately, I also think it's quite easy to forget. There's an old saying that goes, if the shoe fits, wear it. But be careful. If you happen to find a pair of size nine black and gray loafers made to order in the old country, be very careful. You might walk right into the twilight zone. Now, normally at this point in the episode, I would go over to some listener emails, but this time I'm going to do something a little bit different. Recently, I was contacted by a very nice gentleman called Gavin, and Gavin actually works at a new attraction in Binghamton. So it's something a little different for the Twilight Zone podcast. I'm not sure we've ever featured anything like this before. But I thought it was a nice opportunity to speak to someone from within Binghamton itself. And this aspect of a Twilight Zone attraction, I thought was really quite interesting. So I thought, great, you know, let's, uh, let's do it. Let's have a chat. So I'm going to play that for you now. And I will see you at the other side. As a Twilight Zone fan, I uh, I hear about Binghamton all the time, but I've never been there. And, you know, I, I kind of imagine it as this idyllic kind of white picket fence place. You know, tell us a bit about Binghamton. What's it like? It's a pretty uh, small town. Um, it is one of the larger in the area, though. Uh, mm-hmm. We in New York kind of have a, uh inside joke where you need to list off three other major towns and kind of give directions uh, where your hometown is. Right. But uh, it is, like you said, it's uh, an idyllic town. It is very, uh, very quiet and uh, sometimes peaceful. Now, here in Liverpool, I guess Liverpool is famous for one of our exports is the Beatles and... You know, especially in the tourist-type places, Beatles branding is everywhere. So how much has Rod Sailing and the Twilight Zone penetrated Binghamton? And are the reminders of it everywhere? Yeah, there are reminders um, everywhere. There are at least five or six different uh, plaques dedicated to Rod Sailing uh, spread out through town. Um, one, two... Uh, go from New York and from Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. Uh, there's this, uh, like a welcome center for New York and uh, Binghamton Hall of Fame, uh, Walk of Fame, I should say. Yeah. And there is uh, one of the first ones you see is a, a plaque for Ad Serling. I see. I see. There's a park in uh, called Rec Park, and that's kind of where Rod Serling got the basis of. Uh, his episode walking distance uh-huh. and there are carousels around town and uh that carousel that he based uh walking distance on um there was a mural in the carousel itself uh-huh. uh dedicated to rod serling and the twilight zone and there has been also kind of a, a gazebo uh, near it uh dedicated to him wow Okay, so it, is it becoming a bit of a tourist destination for for that reason? I, w- I wouldn't say uh, it's the only reason people come. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, carousels are a really big thing. Twilight Zone is a huge thing. Uh-huh. There's also a very popular Sunday comic called uh, BC that was written and uh, made by another Binghamton native. Uh, that's very popular here yeah. as well. And also, um, one of the big things that uh, has brought a lot of tourists to Binghamton would be our uh, Speedy Fest and Balloon Rally, uh-huh. which is, Speedies are based off of a uh, popular sandwich here. And um, <laughs> hopefully, uh, we will bring people from the Speedy Fest and Balloon Rally and uh, try to get them to come and learn about Rat Serling. Great, great. So, I mean, we're going to talk about. Um our main kind of topic in a moment, I guess, which which is the mm. escape room. So what is an escape room? An escape room is uh, basically you're put into 
a room uh, which generally has a theme. Uh-huh. It can vary from like a spy kind of theme to an Egyptian theme um, and more importantly a, a Twilight Zone theme. Mm. But uh, there are puzzles and uh, that you have to solve and locks that you have to open and either escape or in some cases like our rooms go into the next room and uh, continue on with puzzles and locks to eventually find your way out. I see. I see. So you guys have developed, you, you just mentioned that they're a Twilight Zone escape room, haven't you? Yes. We, we are the only official Twilight Zone escape room in the U.S., uh-huh. and I would even bet to say the world as well. So I, I guess it's it's a funny one, really, because you can't give away all the secrets of the escape room, but what, what, <laughs> yeah. what can you tell us about it? Um, I can tell you, uh, uh, first of all, you don't need to be uh, the biggest expert of Rod Serling uh-huh. uh, to go through it and beat it. I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but uh, the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation didn't make it out. But oh, wow. they had to leave a little early so that we could do our little uh, opening day press conference. Mm-hmm. You start off in uh, a base, a recreation of uh, Rod Serling's Writer's Cottage, which is um, about an hour away from Binghamton. Uh, ah. It's on a lake called Cayuga Lake. Yeah. And you kind of find your way through uh, learning about Rod Serling, what he's done, what awards he's won. Mm-hmm. Um, you learn a little bit about um, his family as well, and uh, you kind of eventually find your way into the Twilight Zone and go through the various dimensions of uh, sight, sound, and mind. Oh, excellent, excellent. So how, how many of you are in there at once? It can range from two to, at the most, we've had ten in one room. Right. Uh, generally, we would recommend about eight people a room because there's so much to see and do. Uh-huh. But it is possible with uh, a lower amount of people. But as far as like running it goes, yeah. uh, usually about uh, two of us run it at one time. Okay, okay. How long does this experience take? I guess it can be different for... For different groups, I suppose. But, you know, on average, how long is is a group in there for? We give them an hour and a half to complete it. Oh, wow. That's a long time. Yeah, it is a long time. Uh-huh. Uh, it is about twice as big as our other rooms, which are only an hour. Yeah. Um, but uh, the average right now would be about uh, five minutes remaining. So about uh, one hour and 25 minutes. I see. I see. Okay, so and you you mentioned this earlier that you know you haven't just set this up um, without permission. You've actually went to the Rod Serling estate, haven't you, and got this officially endorsed? Well, actually, uh, the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation came to us. Oh wow! And we actually had the idea before mm-hmm. uh, to make a Rod Serling room, but uh, we decided not to because of all the. Uh, all the permissions and all the copyrights. And when the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation came to uh, us, we basically said, yes, as long as you can get the rights, we'll do it. Great. Okay. And you emailed me about, you you had an opening night, didn't you? And you had some very special guests there. So tell us about that night. June 15th was our opening day. And, uh, a bunch of people came to it. Um, some of the local press came, and the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, as I said earlier, uh, their president uh, talked about uh, how awesome and exciting it was to have a Twilight Zone escape room. We had uh, the mayor of Binghamton. We had uh, one of the assembly uh, women from the New York State uh, level. Uh-huh. And uh, we had Anne Serling, uh, Rod Serling's daughter, wow. uh, come, and she went through the room. Great. So did she have a good time? Yeah, uh, she she had a really good time. Uh, she messaged uh, me personally and uh, to uh, uh, everyone on the staff. Uh, she said, uh, my dad would have loved it. And at uh, opening day, uh, she said, I thought about my dad as a kid walking through there. And I'm pretty sure he would still be trying to find his way out. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a great. I mean, I've I've spoke to her as well. It's been a couple of years now, mm. but she's such a lovely lady, and you know, to hear that. I guess that that's a great validation for what you're doing there, isn't it? It, it is. It, it was really exciting to have her, and I'm really glad she enjoyed it. And uh, she even got one of our uh, Escapes t-shirts uh, we gave to her, and hopefully she likes it and uh, wears it often. <laughs> now, Sailing Fest is next month, isn't it? It's, uh, it's in July. It's- and so i guess that will hopefully be a busy time for the escape room so you know give us all the details where where can people find you what do they need to do to book uh, and come and experience this if you uh are want to book a uh appointment uh to do one of our escape rooms whether it be twilight zone or other two Mm -hmm. um you go to escapes-stick.com which is uh S-C-A-P-E-S-S-T-I-C.com. Um, it is about $25 a person, uh, $20 if you're a student, and I believe for the Rod Sterling Fest, there is a, a special price for that as well. I want to say it's about 15 or 10 but i'm not 100 percent sure uh-huh okay we uh recommend between uh four to eight people in the group uh but especially eight because like i said there's a lot of stuff to see and do in those rooms so where in town is it located it is at 135 east frederick street which is about close to uh the south of town Okay, so the the kind of company or the the center behind this, what what is it, and what do they do? Um, we are uh, the Southern Tier Independent Center, or uh, Stick, as it's uh, commonly known, um, is a non for profit that uh, offers assistance, uh, advocacy, and services to uh, everyone uh, with disabilities in the Southern Tier region of New York, uh-huh. and uh, the escape rooms are uh, their kind of fundraiser. Wow. And uh, they're actually leading into their uh, 35th uh, anniversary uh, this year. Excellent. So it's, so it's not just a fun time. It's actually a really worthwhile, it's quite a, a really good cause as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a real good fun with a really good cause behind it. Great. So is this going to be a permanent fixture there now? Is, is that going to kind of stay in your facility there for the foreseeable future uh yes definitely um we have like i said we have two other rooms uh one of them valley of the kings has been there since 2016 okay so um at least about two years hopefully mm-hmm. we've gotten the rights to uh the toilet zone name for now but um if sometime in the future uh we don't we can't use the toilet zone name will still run under the uh, Binghamton's Rod Serling experience. Got you. Okay, okay. Well, the reason I ask, Gavin, is because I'm hoping to come to Binghamton next year, you know, for the 60th anniversary. So I'm yeah. going to do it, Gavin. I might have to go in my own because I don't know anyone, yeah. but I'm going to I'm gonna escape that room. I, I'm telling you now. Well, you, you have a time to beat. Oh, yeah, okay. We have our uh, champs right now. We have a leaderboard. Mm. And uh, so far right now, uh, the team with the lowest time is Team Unknown with uh, 23 minutes remaining. Right. Okay. So if you're doing it, you got uh, about an hour and 10 minutes to do it. Okay. Well, Team Unknown, I'm coming for you. I'm uh, going to take that (laughs) title. Okay. Well, Gavin, thanks so much for coming on and sharing the details of this this great experience. And I really hope it's a success and I hope it runs for a long time. And people at Sailing Fest, check it out. But, you know, any time of the year, I hope they come and, and enjoy it there in Binghamton. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me and good luck. So there you go. That was Gavin. Not only a good time, as I said in the interview, not only a good time, but a good cause too, and well worth your support. I know a lot of people are going to be heading to Binghamton this weekend for Sailing Fest 2018. Now, it's really nice to see that this grew from the Twilight Zone coming home last year into a fully-fledged kind of event this year where they're playing 
Planet of the Apes, Twilight Zone the movie, and there's all kinds of things going on. So if you're headed to Binghamton this weekend, I really do hope you have a great time. I wish I could be there. But as I said in that interview, if there is a 2019 event for the 60th anniversary, then I'm pledging right now I'm going to be there, you know. I'm saving up at the moment, and it is my goal to be there for that 60th anniversary celebration. So I hope they do put something together, because I would really like to go and be in the audience for that. So any surplus on the Patreon page that goes beyond paying for the site costs, I'm putting those aside to hopefully get to Binghamton next year for this event, if it happens, and I'm I'm sure it will. So thanks again, Gavin, for speaking to me and uh, taking time out to tell us about the escape room, this new Twilight Zone attraction. So now let's go to some listener emails in Submitted for your approval. Okay, I've had an email from good friend of the show, Stephen, and he says, Hi Tom, your discussion of Night Gallery was a nice surprise. In my previous comment to you, I mentioned the theme of retribution in the Twilight Zone. And lo and behold, all three tales in the pilot episode of Night Gallery featured retribution. Of the three tales, Escape Route seemed to be the least favourite for your co-host Chris Clayton, while it was your favourite. As for me, Escape Route is probably my favourite tale in the entire Night Gallery series, or at least it is the most memorable. It is the tale I always think about when I think of Night Gallery. The twist ending for Escape Route is a shocking surprise, like a punch in the stomach. Maybe many people watching it for the first time weren't surprised at all, and could see the twist coming from a mile away. I wish you had asked Chris, if the twist surprised him, or he expected it. So Chris, did it surprise you or did you expect it? Well thanks for asking Tom, I have to say that I didn't feel shocked by the twist. I also didn't expect it really, I don't think I knew what to expect. Looking back on it, I've only seen this episode once and I did promise to you on the uh, on the first episode of Television Terror that I would go back and revisit it at some point and I still plan on doing that. And I think perhaps seeing it again might help me to understand the story a little bit better. But I said on that episode, didn't I, that it was my least favourite of the of the grouping that we had there. But I have to say, no, I didn't feel shocked by it. I think it's an interesting twist, certainly. But no, no real shock or surprise, I'm afraid, Stephen. Mm. Okay, and we'll be recording Television Terror again soon? Oh yes, we definitely will. I'm going to slink back into the darkness now. It's where I work best. And Stephen goes on, On a side note, when the Nazis sang the German national anthem in the bar, it reminded me of another television show called Pan Am. One of the stewardesses in that show had been a Nazi prisoner who was forced to learn German, and she sang the German national anthem at a party in a painful and touching scene. It's easy to convey the tragic irony of Nazi Germany when the words to their anthem brag about Germany being above the entire world. If you want to see that scene in Pan Am, it's available on YouTube. By the way, do Brits use the idiom coming from a mile away anymore? Do they say coming from a kilometre away? Well, Stephen, the thing is, although we have gone metric, None of us actually use, when we're driving and stuff, none of us actually use kilometres. We all still say miles. It's still miles per hour. It's still so many miles to a certain destination. So so that's what we say. But uh, thanks for writing in, Stephen. Okay, now I've had an email from a listener called Chip, and he says, Hi, Tom. I wanted to write in after listening to the reading of the story, It's a Good Life and then your podcast on the TZ episode and subsequent iterations. I found myself surprised at the story making Anthony much more sympathetic. In the TZ episode, there's nothing redeeming about him. You see what he's doing to animals and other people and think he's just a mean, undisciplined child. And, at least I was, totally rooting for something bad to happen to him. In the story you read that bit about him wanting to help animals and people too, but that people had bad thoughts or weren't honest, which made it hard for him. 
I wish the TV version could have somehow brought that into the story, instead of making Anthony one-dimensional. One odd thing about the story version, if he liked animals and wanted to help them, why was he torturing a rat at the beginning? Any other animal we see him kill was either messing with him or was going to kill another animal. It seemed to be simple cruelty that he was doing that at the start of the story. On another note, I'm still not caught up on your podcast episodes. I'm almost to the 2018 recordings and almost to season 4, actually watching the episodes. I usually watch TZ on my phone during lunch, but after listening to your show and hearing listeners talk about how they first saw the Twilight Zone really late at night and in the dark, and the feelings it gave them, I'm going to try and watch the same way. Set the mood a bit more, I guess. Thanks for all your hard work. Your podcast is definitely one of my favourites, and I appreciate all the background detail you bring to the episodes. Take care. Chip. Well, thank you, Chip. It's good to have you on board, and I always like it when I hear of people starting at the beginning and working their way through. You make a good observation there about it's a good life. I've got no real answer to that one. Yeah, you're absolutely right. He is very cruel to the creature at the beginning, but then there is this other aspect to him that does want to help. So I'm not quite sure about that one, but good observation and, and thanks for writing it. Now, although we kind of capped Planet of the Apes off in the last episode, I thought I would read this one because it's from an old friend of the show, Jack, and I think you'll realise why when I read it. He says, Dear Tom, what a joy it was to listen to your special episode of Rod's work on the Planet of the Apes. There were so many interesting elements that I was unaware of. This show is especially meaningful to me and many of us in the audio drama community as a pillar of our little band has been gone from us for over a year now. My friend Bill Holweg took his own life a year ago in the early hours of April 1st. When I was told that day, my first thought was that such a thing was an ugly April Fool's prank. I wasn't amused. Sadly, it wasn't a prank. Now I wish it was. Bill's enthusiasm for audio drama was profound, and his impact on the modern audio drama movement was equally so. In my own podcast, The Sonic Society, a couple of his close friends and myself reminisced and recast some of his great shows in the extended summer series on Thursdays to a public who wasn't aware of his work. I call Bill the John Carpenter of audio drama because his production and writing sentiments had the same feel as that iconic filmmaker. Among his eternal loves were Rod Serling and the Planet of the Apes. We had long conversations through emails and Skype about both those subjects and others. Bill and I loved the Star Wars radio drama series and saw the power of taking a film and breaking it out into long-form audio drama. Bill was one of the first to do that in the modern age with his take on Planet of the Apes. Bill was a voracious reader and had plans to take all the Apes movies, elements from the ill-fated television show and the comics, to put together a long-running series. Unfortunately for all of us, just as we ache for more Rod Sailing stories that will never be, Bill didn't complete his opus. He did get a long way down the road, and I was grateful to play the part of one of the ape kind in Milo, and one of the mutated human leaders in Mendez. For your approval, and now straight out of his corner of the Twilight Zone, I provide this link to the Imaginatorium of Broken Sea Audio, where you will find Bill's ape adventures. All the best, my friend, and keep on casting, Jack. Well, thank you, Jack. And, you know, first up, my genuine condolences. It's so sad that a man who was clearly beloved by so many and, and spent so much of his spare time making other people happy with his audio dramas has passed so young and, and in such a, a tragic way. So I just wanted to read Jack's email and, and maybe mark that and uh, and maybe spread the word a bit more on Bill's work. I'll definitely be listening to those Planet of the Apes audio dramas and I will put links to them in the show notes for this episode. If you want to check out Bill's work, then you can go to brokensea.com and check it out there. 
but I will put those links in the show notes because Jack also sent some direct links to a couple of extended audio dramas of Planet of the Apes that Bill did. So thanks for sharing that with us, Jack. And I hope at the very least that maybe some of the listeners will now enjoy Bill's work and, you know, his legacy will be kept alive in some way. Okay, so that is enough from me for now. It feels like a bit of a short one, this one, but after the mammoth Planet of the Apes, I was kind of grateful for something really quite short that I could just get out quite quickly. So before we go, I'd like to say thanks to some new iTunes reviewers, Paul Abler, Crazy Crazy Nights, The Zombieist, and Brad 2 Thank you so much. And also to new Patreon supporters, Brent Hostler, Andrew Jordan, Christopher Powers, Becky Artist, DW, and Roz Smith. And like I said, you know, the people who support the show on Patreon are the ones who pay for the hosting of the show, but any surplus I'm putting aside, so hopefully I can go to Binghamton next year and maybe record some podcasts there, you know, that'd be pretty cool, just, just see what I can make out of that. I think that would be a really great opportunity to go to Binghamton on the 60th anniversary and actually record a Twilight Zone podcast there in some way. You know, I've always got ideas and and let's see what comes of that. So that's enough from me. If you want to get in touch, then email me at tom at twilightzonepodcast.com. I love getting emails and MP3s that I can play on the show. If you want to support the show on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash twilightzonepodcast where you can get extra podcasts looking at the 80s show and now Night Gallery also. So let's go over to Rod Serling and see what's coming up next. And now, Mr. Serling. Perhaps no character in or out of fiction has had as much notoriety or publicity as the so-called Grim Reaper. Next week on The Twilight Zone, through the good offices of Mr. Earl Hamner, we present a unique story called The Hunt. It concerns the demise of an old hunter and his dog. And this one we rather urgently recommend to people who have lost their senses of humor and who'd like to recover same. You know, it's only a short hop from the Twilight Zone to Dodge City and Gunsmoke. Saturday nights over most of these stations.